Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later, I'll be discussing the job vacancies about to arise at the top of the European Union with our Europe editor, Patrick Smith. But first this week, we're talking about Donald Trump's ongoing state visit to the UK. And I'm joined on the line now from London by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Dennis, this is not Donald Trump's first visit to the UK as US president. He was there on official business last July, but it is his first state visit. And of course, that brings with it a lot more pomp and ceremony. How would you say it has been going so far for him and, and for his hosts? It's been going very well, uh, particularly for him. He seems to have enjoyed especially the uh, you know, the events at Buckingham Palace. There was uh, a lunch uh, with uh, the Queen and then she had a state banquet for him last night. And uh, he kept his remarks very tame and uh, he has his entire family with him, more or less, all his uh, sons and daughters and their various spouses. And uh, and so he's uh, he seems to be really just having a very good time. And today uh, he was the political part of the visit. He's here for three days. Uh, first day was very much ceremonial. Uh, today is political and tomorrow uh, he goes to Portsmouth for the 75th anniversary of uh, the D-Day landings, the start of two days of commemorations of that. And uh, so today he, ha- he met Theresa May and uh, they had a joint press conference in the Foreign Office afterwards. And he was very upbeat and, uh, you know, although, uh, you know, he's obviously an unpredictable figure, he was, uh, he appeared to be determined to avoid any kind of discord and was full of praise uh, for Theresa May and very playful, really. And did anything of substance emerge from the press conference? Well, there were two elements. There were, you know, there were two kind of policy stories going around. One was to do with uh, Huawei and uh, and whether this Chinese company should have uh, access to some contracts for building uh, Britain's 5G mobile telecommunications network. And uh, Britain has made or is is about to make uh, a decision on this. And what we expect the decision to be would be that Huawei would be allowed to uh, to be involved in some parts of the network, but not core elements so that they, uh, you know, what Britain, uh, Britain's security people believe is that they have, uh, you know, found a way of minimizing any kind of security risk. What Donald Trump and the Americans have been saying is that uh, nobody should be using Huawei because Huawei is effectively an arm of the Chinese government and that there is a danger that they would be able to burrow their way into Britain's secrets. And because Britain has this full intelligence sharing arrangement with uh, the United States and some other countries, the so-called Five Eyes Network, uh, that uh, you know that that would be a risk to America's security as well. So what he said today was, uh, no problem, we're going to find a way around this because there had been some anxiety that he was going to somehow suggest that uh, that the U.S. would stop sharing intelligence with Britain. So first of all, he kind of scotched that. And then the second thing was just about uh, a trade deal with uh, with the US and the UK after Britain leaves the European Union. And both sides have been saying they want this. But uh, the American ambassador to uh, to London caused a bit of controversy the other day when he said that everything would be part of this, would be on the table, including the NHS. And so, uh, you know, uh, so procurement contracts for Britain's National Health Service. And somebody asked a question about this to uh, Donald Trump today and said, yeah, would the NHS be part of this? And Donald Trump obviously had never heard of the NHS and had no idea what it was. So Theresa May then had to explain to him what the NHS was. And then he said, yeah, everything, NHS, everything will be on the table. So... Um, 
So everything will be on the table, he says, for the for, for the trade deal. <laughs> How much does it matter, Dennis, that Theresa May is about Theresa May is about to be replaced as Prime Minister? Does that affect the amount of business that can be done on a trip like this? Yes, because uh, clearly she's leaving. And so, for example, something like, say, the the Huawei uh, you know, issue, which I mentioned, there's a very good chance that the next uh, British Prime Minister, whether that's Boris Johnson or Michael Gove, say, could actually take a different view from Theresa May and could decide that the transatlantic relationship is more important than anything else. And they want to get close to Donald Trump and take a more hawkish approach to China. So, uh, in a sense, he can afford to be nice to Theresa May and say, well, I'm not going to get into an argument with her because she's going to be gone in a few weeks anyway. So it does make a difference. And that, in a way, that kind of has helped, uh, in a funny way, the mood of the visit because it's much more relaxed. And clearly for uh, Donald Trump, he's not really interested in talking policy here. He's really just interested in uh, in having some uh, some ceremonial fun. And uh, and he's, they went to Churchill's war rooms this afternoon and... And he generally seems to be having a good time. He's had, you know, he's having a few kind of spats, uh, you know, over the airwaves and over Twitter with the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and he went on the attack against him again today. But, uh, you know, but nothing major. And then the other thing he he did reveal was that Jeremy Corbyn, who has been speaking at a demonstration to uh, against the Trump visit today, he said that uh, the president said that uh, Corbyn had asked to meet him, but that he, uh, Donald Trump, had decided not to meet him. And Jeremy Corbyn's office confirmed that uh, Jeremy Corbyn had indeed wanted to meet him, but that uh, uh, the meeting wasn't arranged. Is that embarrassing for Corbyn? Is that something that Labour would prefer not to have said anything about? I don't think so, really, because I, I, you know, his line has been that uh, they are uh, willing to talk to uh, Donald Trump, and he's willing to talk to Donald Trump, and has always been willing to talk to him. He just doesn't think he should get a state visit because a state visit is an honour that not every president gets, and that uh, he's done nothing to deserve it. And in fact, he's not a you know not a person who ought to be honoured in this way. Uh, so I think it's kind of on message for Jeremy Corbyn to be uh, seeking a meeting with him, but it's also very much on message for him to be uh, demonstrating against him outside. Now, um, speaking of demonstrations, his last visit in July brought tens of thousands, certainly, onto the streets. The protests were quite big. Have they been as big on uh, on this occasion? No, uh, they were very big last time, up to a quarter of a million on some estimates. Here they have been quite a lot smaller. It's it's very wet, it's very rainy here, and that uh, that's part of it. But I think also maybe part of it is that although... Uh, people feel the same way about Donald Trump as they did a year ago or two years ago, they possibly feel it with less intensity. And so in a way, maybe uh, people in Britain have got used to the idea of Donald Trump being president, whether they like it or not. And so uh, it's really uh, a more committed element who have come out to protest today. And uh, and so the protests, as I was walking past them uh, just now in Parliament Square, were, uh, you know, they were lively, but but, but certainly not not enormous. Um, you mentioned there he, he seems to have been um, more diplomatic at the press conference today than, than he sometimes is, but he still was asked a question about the Tory party leadership contest, wasn't he? And, and um, what did he have to say about that? Well, what he said was that he had he was asked about speaking to uh, Boris Johnson. He said, yes, he had, that he knew Boris Johnson and that, uh, you know, he thought he'd make a good prime minister. He said, of course, I also know Jeremy, Jeremy Hunt, the foreign secretary who was sitting in front of him. And uh, he said, I'm sure he'd make a good prime minister. He said, I don't know Michael Gove 
Gove. Uh, but uh, I think he said, what do you think, Jeremy? Would Michael Gove make a good prime minister? So, uh, and they said, what do you think, Theresa? And so, uh, but of course, in fact, he actually does know Michael because, because Gove. Because he... Michael Gove interviewed him. <laughs> yes. Times. But anyway, he was... There's, there's Made a big impression, they, obviously. <laughs> yes, exactly. There is some talk that he may meet uh, Michael Gove uh, later today. And those are uh, really the uh, the three front runners uh, in the race to uh, uh, to succeed Theresa May with with Boris Johnson very much in front. And you mentioned there his his feud, if you like, with Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London. And the trip started with an extraordinary Twitter rant in which he called Khan a stone cold loser. Apart from kind of setting a bad tone for the visit, did that have any impact on the on the atmosphere around it? No, it, it kind of gave a bit of excitement. But I think the fact was that because immediately after that, he went into the full kind of royal ceremonial and people were kind of you know, expressing amazement that the Queen and Prince Charles and all these people were smiling and chatting. But it's, you know, what else are they going to do? You know, they uh, it's what they do all the time. And so so they were very nice to him and to his wife and to the family. And uh, so I think he, you know, he felt, you know, he felt very comfortable and happy uh, with that. And so there was no real occasion for him to to kind of continue uh, his rant until today and then he he did uh, right away actually and so then to finish you mentioned uh, tomorrow Wednesday uh, his trip finishes with um, a visit to Portsmouth for the the 75th anniversary um, uh, D-Day event does that mean now the potential for things to go wrong on this trip have now you know we've passed that stage and is everybody breathing a sigh of relief I'm not sure that that's ever true because obviously he has Twitter and Twitter never sleeps, and so uh, and he appears never to sleep either uh, in terms of the tweet the tweeting. So he uh, so I think that, you know there are you know the, the, this evening there is the American kind of return dinner uh, at the American ambassador's house in Regent's Park. That'll be this evening, and then uh, tomorrow will be pretty choreographed. But he is you know uh, you know if he does meet Michael Gove, if he does meet various other people during his downtime either later today or early tomorrow morning. He could make more news, uh, but I think in terms of the official events, he's probably unlikely to uh, to make much news. And then, as you know, immediately after Portsmouth, he goes over to Doonbeg and uh, and remains there for a couple of days, popping over to Normandy for part two of the D-Day commemorations on Thursday. So we should remain vigilant. Dennis, thank you. You're listening to The Irish Times. Thanks again to Dennis Staunton, our London editor. Well, as we mentioned there, a vacancy is about to arise at the top of the Conservative Party in the UK and, by extension, at number 10 Downing Street. And whoever fills that post will be dealing with new people in the top jobs in the EU. We thought it was a good day to discuss this, not least because Patrick Smith, our Europe editor, is home from Brussels for a few days and joins me now in studio. Paddy, just remind us again, what top jobs in the EU are we talking about here? Where did the vacancies arise? Well, the, the, the term of the Commission President, of the President of the Council of uh, Ministers, of the High Representative for Foreign Policy, uh, all come up at the end of, of any Commission term every five years. So they're due to be filled. At the same time, there's a vacancy at the head of the European Central Bank, uh, which is regarded as a plum position, which a lot of member states would be very keen to, to fill. So we've got three inside the, the main European institutions and then one in the ECB, which is also a European institution. As well as that, there is the job of President of the European Parliament, which will come up when the new Parliament sits and which could be seen as a, a way of compensating somebody who didn't get the top job in the, in the Commission. The one party that has generated the most discussion to date has been uh, the post of European Commission President, currently held by Jean-Claude Juncker. 
Just remind us, Paddy, what does the European Commission president do? What are the specific duties and responsibilities that go with that role? Well, he's head of the the Civil Service Commission, which is the, the executive body of the uh, um, of the European Union, and he he therefore is responsible for enacting the policies agreed by by others. the The old formula is that the Commission, um, the Council proposes, that is, the heads of government propose, and the the Commission executes their their acts. So underneath him, there would be 27, 28 uh, commissioners, commissioners responsible for different areas of policy, and he coordinates their work. And how is this post filled? Now, this is, this is where the row has happened. O- over the years, initially, it was simply a nomination by the um, heads of government, and that was straightforward enough, although at that stage, it was also unanimous. It is now moved to a situation where the commission uh, is, the commission president is, proposed by the heads of government and voted on or elected, uh, as the treaty says, by the parliament. Now, uh, they are entitled to put forward one name and the parliament is entitled to reject it. And if that name is rejected, then the the leaders are supposed to go back and vote again. The council, which is the leaders and heads of government, have tried to um, exercise their right uh, as they see it, their prerogative to nominate who they want. That's not made MEPs very happy. MEPs want to be able to bounce them into accepting their nominee. So they developed this system called Spitzenkandidat. Spitzenkandidat was a system whereby each of the political parties in Europe uh, running in the elections on a transnational basis nominated a candidate who would be their lead candidate or Spitzenkandidat uh, for the position of, of commission uh, president. And the party which could secure in the parliament after the elections the majority vote for its candidate would then see that person nominated by the council. Now, the council uh, has never accepted in, uh, that it, it will accept that nomination system automatically and have warned uh, the, the parliament that uh, they, they may very well pick somebody else. So we're seeing a tussle at the moment, and the Spitzen candidat, uh, the lead Spitzen candidat, is Manfred Weber, who was elected by uh, the uh, EPP or the centre right uh, as their their candidates, the Fine Gael party, in effect, uh, their group, and uh, he is expecting uh, that the leaders will elect him then um, as as. Uh, Commission President. They have other ideas and their first meeting to discuss this saw them beginning to talk about the possibility of other candidates. And there's been various noises about how uh, they need somebody with executive experience, extensive executive experience, and notably Manfred Weber, who has only ever been an MEP and a president of the European Parliament, has no ministerial experience at all. So the leaders are signalling that they're looking around for someone else. But presumably if the Parliament doesn't like counsel, in other words, of the heads of government, and they come back with their own candidate, they still have to get it past the Parliament, in, don't they? Indeed they do, and that's that's uh, uh, that's going to be quite an interesting uh, tussle because uh, they don't forget that the parties in the Parliament are also parties in the council. So they are going to be tussling with their own leaders, in effect. And so it matters, for example, how strongly... Uh, Angela Merkel supports Manfred Weber as a candidate because she not only has the vote in the in the council, a very influential vote in the council, but she also is a, a leading member of the EPP. Uh, and and if there's a quid pro quo that can be done, uh, Angela Merkel is quite likely to say, actually, I would prefer 
uh, Franz Timmermans, for example, who is the socialist lead candidate, also commissioner, um, and a man with some considerable executive experience. I'd like him uh, if we can give another job to Manfred Weber. Um, and it's not just Merkel, is it? I mean, the EPP must have, I, I, is it, would they have six or seven heads of government within nine. the EPP? It's nine at the moment. Yeah. That would include Orban, Victor Orban, it would, it, who, yeah. who, who may or may not be on the way out the door, but it's eight or nine anyway. So if the eight or nine uh, heads of government who are members or whose parties are affiliated to the EPP, if they stand by the EPP's nomination, well, then surely Weber has a very fair win behind him. Well, he's got to get what's called a qualified majority vote. And that is, uh, as far as I know, if for this particular job, two thirds of the votes in the council and two thirds of the representing two thirds of the European population. So he needs more, considerably more than nine votes out of 28. Uh, he needs he needs uh, he needs to see an, uh, a fair wind behind him from other groups like the socialists, like the liberals, like the greens who've done particularly well in the, in this election, and so uh, it's by no means clear that they can get a, a qualified majority. Now I can't get that doesn't mean they can get a qualified majority for anybody else, and we may be in a situation rather like the British uh, in uh, the Commons where there's not a majority for anyone. But I, I would I would expect that with a bit of jockeying and a bit of give and take. With the leaders for bargaining between each other, saying, I'll take this one if you take that one, and I'll support your man for, for high representative if you support my man for the commission. Uh, we will see, over the course of the next few months, uh, we will see a bargain. How did this resolve itself in 2014, Paddy? Because the Spitzen candidate system was in place then, wasn't it? Um, so it was, and it was actually it was interesting because Merkel was actually quite was quite unhappy about it. But the Spitzen candidate candidate uh, Jean Claude Juncker won over another uh, well-known candidate, um, Michel Barnier, and um, so it's interesting to see Barnier back in the in the race again, uh, though a bit of an outsider. Who else is in the race then? Well, there's quite a lot of people. Um, of the Spitzen candidate, you have Franz Timmermans, who's a socialist and who's a vice president of the commission, um, who has acquired quite a reputation for, for championing rule of law issues, particularly taking on, on Hungary and, and Poland. But that is quite likely to in, in, enrage uh, the, the Poles and the Hungarians in this election, who are, Orban is certainly not going to support Timmermans. Nah. That might not matter if other parties support him. There's Margaret Vestager, who is the Commissioner for Competition, who has acquired a reputation for taxing the digital, or for fining the digital giants for, for misbehaving uh, and uh, putting Ireland's nose out of joint with her, her massive fine uh, on Apple. She's a Dane. She's, supporter, she's uh, supported by the Liberals. There's Michel Barnier, who isn't, hasn't, didn't stand for Parliament, and so he would be more difficult for, for the Council to justify to Parliament uh, as an alternative uh, Spitzen candidate, um, as an alternative to the Spitzen candidates. And just, to, just to remind people, so yeah. Weber, Timmermans and Vestager all stood for the European Parliament and, and all got elected. Yep. And then uh, Barnier, who, who's, who's done what everybody believes is a sterling job in negotiating with the British on... Um, uh, Brexit and who the Irish Times claimed in an article the other day is Ireland's number two candidate and would certainly be supported by Leo uh, Varadkar. Though Mr Varadkar, when I asked him about this recently, uh, refused to comment. Not surprisingly, because Mr Varadkar is a loyal member of the EPP and for the time being must keep the, the party line uh, right. 
there's another liberal. Um, Michel Barnier is 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 a. Is not a, a liberal. He's from the French Conservatives, and he, but he does have the support of of Macron, uh, which is very important because the French don't otherwise have a candidate in in the in the race, and the French uh, have a very strong sense of ownership of most of these jobs. Um, Guy Verhofstadt is another liberal. He's former Belgian Prime Minister, and he would be a rival to. Um, Margaret Vestager. I think it's not likely that he would be uh, uh, elected. He has a reputation as, as a maverick, as somebody who would be very difficult to control. And I don't think the the, the leaders of, of uh, uh, the various heads, the heads of government in, in, in Europe would be happy with. Very outspoken. Very outspoken. Very outspoken, very Twitter, outspoken and, and, and very, very difficult to uh, to control. Vera Jourova is another commissioner. She's also Aldi. Um, the, the Spain Spain has thrown a candidate in in in, in recent times, a, a guy called Josep Borrell, who's a former president of the European Parliament. Spanish did very well in the European elections, and therefore the, the socialist, you the, mean, the, the Spanish the, socialist. The, sorry, the Spanish yes. socialist yeah. did extremely well in in the in elections. Pedro Sanchez uh, feels that it's time for Spain to take uh, one of the top jobs, and Borrell is is his candidate. So those would be the main candidates, I think, in the, in the running for the Commission President. I presume just to go back briefly to Timmermans, the advantage you would have over Weber is lots of executive experience. Yes, he's. Uh, I think he was Deputy Prime Minister. He might have been. He might have been Prime Minister for, for a period of time, and and he is. Um, he's very well known. He's been around for a long time, and uh, he would. I mean, obviously, the socialists would 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 uh, would support his candidature, but it's also likely that the Greens and uh, the Liberals be more sympathetic to him than they would to to Weber. Uh, so it, it is possible that he would be a, a strong um, uh, alternative. And it's still entirely possible that somebody else may yet emerge who hasn't even been mentioned in the in the the, the stakes so far. It's yeah. entirely possible. It's entirely possible. Somebody said to me the other day that when the leaders get round the, the table and, and Tusk says, well, what about one of you guys? Uh, they look around the table and they see Charles Michel, for example, a Belgian uh, prime minister or his former prime minister, I think he's in the caretaker role at the moment, who would who would get support um, from the Liberals and who could is a possible candidate. Uh, people have m- mentioned uh, Angela Merkel. She has repeatedly denied she's interested in a job, and people think that if she did want to take a job, she might uh, be more interested in Tusk's job as council president. Well, that brings us maybe onto onto that uh, role. I mean, so far. There hasn't been as much discussion, I think, about potential candidates for that position. Just, just what's the position there? Tusk also uh, well, a big steps down. Tusk step, steps down, and I, I think it's a terrible pity, actually, because I think he's he's really been quite uh, uh, striking, uh, very much outspoken, uh, but but and, and blunt and to the point uh, in, in a very useful way. The council president's an interesting job because it's the sort of shop steward of the uh, leaders. He very much represents them in their dealings, both with each other, but also with with the commission. And so what you want is somebody who you feel could could speak uh, for you, who who is sympathetic uh, to your position and and who isn't going to be pushed around uh, by anybody, like particularly by the commission. So there's a there's a long list of of, of potential uh, names there. Charles Michel again has been mentioned. I, I should just just say that the leaders have taken the view in the past that the council uh, president should be a former prime minister. So that cuts down the field somewhat, um, and it certainly rules out uh, somebody like Weber uh, completely. 
I'm not sure how hard and fast the rule is, but if you hadn't been a, a, um, a prime minister, you'd want to have been something pretty close to to, to that to be considered. Uh, so I suppose the most interesting of the, the candidates, uh, I think, if, if Angela Merkel isn't going to stand, because she has repeatedly said she wants to retire, she wants to go walking with her husband and, and get out of politics, uh, she would be very welcome, I think, from uh, right across the political spectrum if she did. She'd give great authority to the, to the job. But the Lithuanian president, Dalia Griboskis, uh, Griboskatis, I think, I can't, her name is very difficult to pronounce, uh, is, is talked about as a potential uh, replacement. She's been around for a bit. She's, from an, she's a politically independent, but more on the, on the right. So she would be uh, easily acceptable to the EPP. She's a woman with the sort of big blonde hair, which she's, is very yeah, striking looking. Yeah, uh, and, and she's got a wicked sense of humor. And she's, she's uh, been quite uh, outspoken over the years. And that uh, she is, uh, you know, uh, is a former prime minister, is president at the, at the moment. Um, and I think she must be in, in a good chance, particularly as, as Tusk and others have said, they would like to see 50-50 representation in the top jobs by women. Now, as you will have noticed in my first list of, of uh, jobs of the commission, uh, the, the women who are mentioned are really outsiders, and uh, Vestager particularly, I think, is the strongest of the, of the outsiders as a woman. It, it could be possible that uh, uh, the leaders would agree to the Gributskatis as as president, uh, and it would would help them meet their their quota of women. There's uh, Charles Michel, the Belgian, um, Hella Thorning Schmidt, who's a former Danish prime minister. The problem with that is that she she wouldn't be supported by the her present government, which is not a socialist uh, government. Mark Rutte, who uh, would be very highly regarded, he's the, D- the Dutch prime minister. Uh, he has uh, problems at home, and if he left, uh, his coalition would probably not survive. And the feeling is that this is not Rutter's turn for it, but that Rutter almost certainly will be is a future council council president. Um, and uh, and then, I, as, I, as I mentioned, Angela Merkel is a, is a possibility. But those are the names that have been mentioned. Are there other balancing <coughs> con- considerations at play here, Paddy, apart from gender? I mean, for example, if, if the commission president role was filled by somebody from say France or Germany or one of the more powerful EU countries is more likely than that the council presidency would go to somebody from one of the peripheral countries or do, do those factors come into play? Yeah, they do certainly and and the, uh, there's absolutely no question but that if, if a Frenchman for example got the commission president that the French should be ruled out for all the other jobs uh, there, there is an attempt to get a geographical distribution there's an attempt to get a political distribution so that the socialists in the past would have been compensated uh, for with with jobs uh, in in one of the top uh, positions it's more complicated this time because it's not just the socialists in the parliament it is the greens and the liberals who are all saying hold on a sec you know this is not a, a duopoly anymore and we would like to see our people represented. And because they have the crucial uh, balancing votes, it's possible that they will exercise some, uh, some leverage there. Gender is, is extremely important. I think, I think it's absolutely, without doubt, one of the jobs will go to a woman, perhaps uh, two. It's, it's difficult to see uh, where the second uh, woman's position would, would uh, go because most of the candidates for the ECB are, are male. And uh, the the list 
of people who are being mentioned for the um, high representative is pretty short at the moment. Um, the, the foreign policy. The foreign policy chief, uh, if you like. Uh, yeah. chief uh, taking over from Federica Mogherini. She was a, a socialist and a woman, so she filled, uh, she ticked several boxes at once. Tusk and Juncker seem to uh, work very well together, at least uh, looking at it from this remove anyway, they, they seem to get on well. Uh, if I'm right about that, is that important and is, is that a matter of luck or chance or do you also look for two people who actually are the top and the top two jobs who can function well as a unit? I think it is, it's important. I mean, the, the, the backdrop to this is a, an inter-institutional tussle between the member states and the Commission and the desire by, by the Commission to, uh, to run things. They would like more power of initiative, for example, uh, uh, whereas the Council is saying very firmly, no, we are the ones who will initiate, you will carry out the policy. And we are, we are going to make sure that we have a strong council president uh, to keep you guys in, in, in line. And you've seen that that uh, quite a few times Tusk has exercised that, that power. He's also created a new form of debate within the, the council meetings, uh, what he calls the president's, uh, um, uh, the leader's agenda, uh, which is a way of leaders discussing issues that haven't been put on the table by the commission. And uh, it's actually been quite uh, a, a good tool for opening up discussions and pushing an, an agenda forward. The Commission then comes back at the next meeting to with proposals to implement the discussions that have been made at the, at the previous meeting. Just briefly on the European Central Bank, Paddy, again, have we any, have any can, candidates emerged? Uh, there, there are candidates. Uh, the German Central Banker Jens Weidemann is the favourite. Uh, Erki Likkanen, who's a former Finnish central bank uh, and a former commissioner, is, is in there. Klaus Knut, uh, a Dutch central banker. Benoit Curé, who's a member of the ECB uh, central uh, executive board. And there's a Frenchman, almost inevitably, François Villeroy de Gallo, part uh, of the central bank, a French central bank. Who who will get it is is not clear at all, and and probably relates to the other jobs. The problem is that, um, and the leaders are very insistent that the central bank position is not a quote a political job. It is filled by a banker of co uh, on the basis of competence. Uh, but nevertheless, it's part, so. of, it's, <laughs> it's part of a political mix, uh, and there is inev inevitably a bit of jostling. Uh, so, if they can come to the conclusion, for example, that two of the candidates are are uh, equally uh, meritorious, uh, it's likely that the job would go to someone, for example, who, who ticks one of, the, one of the boxes. I would say, say for example, the, the Finnish uh, candidate would, would be in with a very good chance because he wouldn't be a Frank, Franco-German part of that axis or, 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 or whatever. And you notice that the, the names I gave you, none of them are women. There's yet another job, but we might come back to it a future podcast, which of course is European Parliament presidency, but I, th I think the clock has beaten us for today. But just w what's the timetable now? Um, I mean, all of these posts, am I correct, will be filled pretty much in tandem, will they? The Parliament meets for the first time on the new Parliament on, on July the 1st, and the, the process of filling the, the top jobs will, will start then. I have to confess that I'm not absolutely certain that the presidency will be filled at that, at that point. Um, and it is quite likely that if Manfred Weber doesn't get the job of uh, Commission President, uh, that he will be looking for the job of Parliament President and being the leader of the largest group, uh, he must be in with a very good chance. Paddy, thanks for coming in. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.